Our passage this morning is John chapter 13, 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back from God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon who, Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for not leaving us alone in this world, but you've given us the word that we might know how to live and the Holy Spirit to empower us. And now, Father, we ask that you will be with Tom, that you will help him to say the things that we need to hear, and that your Holy Spirit will accompany the words that, that he teaches. And Father, I pray that we would be open and receptive to your word, that we would humble ourselves before you and obey you in, in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. We, uh, we come this morning to chapter 13 of John's Gospel. And that means that we've reached the part of this book that is for Christians the mother load of this treasure that God delivered to his church through John's testimony concerning Christ. The previous 12 chapters of John's Gospel have selectively covered all of the first three years of Jesus' ministry up to this point. Now, in chapters 13 to 17, John addresses the events of one single day. 
The same day that ends in chapter 18 with Jesus' arrest and with his middle-of-the-night trial by the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. The very next day ends with Jesus' death on the cross. Now consider those proportions for just a moment. The first 12 chapters of John's Gospel covered more than a thousand days. Now we have five chapters that cover one day. That should tell us that we're on exceedingly hallowed ground as we come into chapters 13 to 17. Now this is what Christians have long called the upper room discourse of Jesus. Both Mark and Luke in their Gospels give us a little more detail about the location in which these things occurred. Mark 14 says, On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, Jesus' disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready and prepare for us there. And the disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. Now in in Acts chapter 1, we learn that after our Lord's death and resurrection, this same upstairs room in a house in Jerusalem became the gathering point for 120 people on the day of Pentecost or just leading up to that event. But the focus here in John 13 is on a very intimate meeting between Jesus and the 12 disciples, soon to become 11. In the first four verses of chapter 13, John the Apostle does some very strategic stage setting for the foot washing episode and really stage setting for all that's going to come in the rest of this upper room discourse through chapter 17. Twice in these first four verses, John uses the phrase, knowing that. He's talking about Jesus. Verse 1, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of the world to his Father. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come forth from God and was going back to God. See, John is, is very deliberately drawing our attention to the fact that Jesus was really mindful at this point of His soon return to His Father. In the previous chapter, chapter 12, When Jesus referred to his hour that had now come, he was talking about the hour of his death. He said, shall I ask the Father to to save me from this hour? See, he's not talking about his glorification there. He's talking about his death. But here, when John refers to the hour that Jesus knew had finally come, he's not talking about his death. He's talking about his return to where he came from. His return to His rightful glory at the right hand of His Father. That's what Jesus had in mind as these events unfold. 
immediately between the two statements, verse 1 and verse 3, that tell us Jesus knew it was time to return to his father, John tells us that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. Now the strategic positioning of that statement between the other two tells me that the betrayal of, of Jesus by Judas was absolutely no surprise at all to Jesus. Jesus knew this was about to happen. The other Gospels tell us the same. In John 10, of course, Jesus said no one can take his life from him. He said he has absolute authority to, to take up his life, to give up his life, to lay it down, and he has absolute authority to take it up again. Nobody else has that authority. What John tells us in these first four verses is that what we will see about Judas later in this chapter is no surprise, and Judas is not the one calling the shots. Everything in these first four verses is critically connected with what will come again, what will come in the next day, actually that day, the next day, and then the third day after the next day. <laughs> There are three planned humiliations of Jesus in these chapters still to come. Three planned humiliations. The first is the washing of his disciples' feet. The second is the, the betrayal by Judas. And the third is the suffering and crucifixion of Jesus. John is making very sure that we see all three of those planned humiliations in light of, of our Lord's laser-like focus at this point on the certainty that he was about to return to his rightful glory at his Father's side. He wants us to get the infinite contrast between the exaltation that Jesus deserved from mankind and what Jesus was about to do for mankind. The infinite contrast between what Jesus, the exaltation Jesus deserved from man, and what Jesus was about to do for man, starting in this passage. In this particular chapter, John wants us to get that the one who set aside his garments, wrapped a towel around his, around his waist, got on the ground to wash the feet of his disciples, was the same Lord of glory that John introduced to us in the prologue to this gospel. The word who was in the beginning with God, who was, is, and always will be God. See, John's making sure we understand that the one who's about to wash the disciples' feet is the one who created the disciples. As he bowed low to clean the feet of his unworthy disciples and even of the one who was about to utterly betray him, John tells us Jesus was thinking about two things. The first we've already seen. He was thinking about his very soon return to the glory that had belonged to him from eternity past in the company of his father. Secondly, he was thinking about his deep, deep love for those he came to save. In verse 1, right after John says that Jesus was thinking about his return to his father, he tells us what motivated Jesus' actions toward his disciples on this Passover day and toward mankind on the next day. 
having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now the word end there is the word for perfection, completion. Everything Jesus was about to do would be done because he loved his own who were in the world with a love that has no bounds, no limits, a love that is absolutely perfect. The living parable that Jesus then proceeds to set before his disciples in this passage comes in the form of a simple act of practical service rendered to undeserving men. Men whose minds, by the way, were filled at that very moment with, with concern about their honor and their prestige. They were, they were jockeying over who was going to be able to sit at Jesus' right hand in his kingdom that very day. We need to consider for a moment the lowliness of what Jesus actually does in this passage. In 1 Samuel 25, King David sent his servants to tell a woman named Abigail that he wanted to take her for his wife. Now, I won't tell you the whole story. You can go look it up if you want. But Abigail, who was actually a very wise and capable woman, displayed godly humility as she bowed with her face to the ground before the servants of David and said to them, Behold, your maidservant is a maid to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. See, foot washing was the work of maidservants of the very lowest rank, servants of servants. And now the Lord of glory after removing all his clothing except his loincloth, tied a towel around his waist, got down on the floor to do a job that carried in that culture the label lowliest of the low. You're getting the picture of where this is going? Jesus' own words to his disciples in this passage tell us there are two layers to the vivid picture of cleansing that Jesus then proceeds to set before the the disciples. The foot washing is both a preview and a paradigm. It is a preview of the ultimate cleansing that Jesus would accomplish the very next day at the cross. And it is a paradigm, a pattern or template for the humble service that he requires of every disciple in every age. First, Jesus cleanses hearts. He presents this foot washing as a preview of, a, of what he's going to do the next day. When he came to Peter and bowed himself down to wash Peter's feet, Peter did what Peter had become famous for doing by this point. <laughs> Without any effort at mental editing, Peter blurted out what all of the disciples were no doubt thinking. And and by the way, what you and I would have been thinking, so we don't need to beat Peter up too, too judiciously here. He said to Jesus, Lord, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Jesus is clearly tying this humble act of service to the infinitely greater act of humble service 
that he would render the next day. But if that connection is still a little foggy in this first exchange between Jesus and Peter, it gets a whole lot clearer in the next exchange. Before we go to that next exchange, though, I think there's a valuable point for us to consider, a point of application right here. Jesus said, What I do you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. And yet he required Peter to comply. Right? There were many times in Jesus' ministry when the disciples were perplexed or confused about something that Jesus said or did. Many things did not become clear to them until after his death and resurrection. And more things did not become clear to him until after they received the Holy Spirit. Who would lead them, Jesus said, would lead them into all truth. But God the Father had already borne clear and compelling witness to the identity and the character of his Son. He had done so for the last... 1,400 plus years through the prophets. And he had done so for the last three years through Jesus himself. That witness of the Father to the Son demanded the disciples' faith and submission. That clear and compelling witness made it both reasonable and necessary for them to continue trusting Jesus with childlike faith, even when the things that he did and said made no sense to them. Now that in itself is a really good lesson for you and me. We are called to trust all that God has revealed and promised because the one who has revealed it is perfectly trustworthy. He never lies. He never leads us astray. His word is truth. And His Spirit, who wrote His incomparable word, is at work in us always to lead us into all the truth. Even if you're a baby Christian and you know very little of the Scriptures, what you do know is sufficient to compel you to trust the one who wrote this book. Here in John 13, Jesus assured Peter he would one day understand what what Jesus was doing at that moment, but not that day. But now for Peter, (laughs) this was a tough assignment. Peter had to allow Jesus to do something that to his mind was unthinkable. And of course, Peter wasn't quite finished yet telling Jesus just how unthinkable it was. In the next exchange between Peter and Jesus, Peter, who's still in the mode of questioning the reasoning ability of the one who made him, said to Jesus, never shall you wash my feet. Literally, if you just read it in the original, it's, you shall not wash my feet forever. I can't help imagining Jesus at that point saying, well, hmm, since you pretty much always have at least one of your feet in your mouth that looks like you're planning on cleaning them yourself. Jesus' actual response to Peter is at the same time both piercing and amazingly gracious. He said to Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me or in me. That statement is what I used as the title for this message. It means... 
If I do not wash you, you have nothing to do with me. You have no inheritance in me. The precious and magnificent promises of God that I came to pour out on those whom I will redeem will not apply to you. This has to rank among one of the most worldview-defining declarations that came from the lips of Jesus during His earthly ministry. If I do not wash you, you have no part in Me. This was not negotiable. See, the cleansing that this act of humble service previewed was the infinitely more necessary cleansing that would be accomplished by Jesus the very next day through an infinitely greater humiliation. If Peter had persisted in refusing this act of service by Jesus toward him, how would he ever understand the necessity of the one that was coming the next day? And of course, that one presented an even greater crisis of faith for Peter than this one did. But Jesus had already, already claimed Peter as his own. And he was going to bring Peter to receive both of those humble works of service, even if it was kicking and screaming. Having made Peter the object of his eternal love, Jesus would love him to the uttermost, just as he does every soul that his Father has given to him from eternity past. Have you ever considered that it requires a heart of humility to accept an act of humility from another person? Have you ever thought about the fact that what keeps you from graciously receiving an act of service from a brother or sister in Christ isn't humility on your part, it's pride. We blame that kind of behavior on humility, but we've got it completely wrong. I know Christians who won't let themselves be served by other Christians. That proves they do not understand how godly humility works. This morning, there was discussion about the, the many gifts that God gives us that make us different so that we will be irresistibly pulled together and through the exercise of all the gifts, we will be able to carry on with the work of Jesus Christ on this earth. Guys, God made us to need each other. Let yourself be served for the sake of the head of the body. Think back on this gospel for a moment. Consider what was it that had caused so many who were initially impressed with Jesus to end up walking away from Him in unbelief. They embraced Him as long as He did the things that they expected a God-sent King to do. But this King did things they didn't expect. See, He came to do something that no earthly King had ever done or would ever do or could ever do. He came to lay down His life to rescue lost sinners from eternal condemnation to claim them for Himself. He came from the glory of heaven to this cursed earth to take upon Himself the curse of our sin. 
For Peter and the other disciples, Jesus' humble act of washing their feet was a test of very great significance. If Peter could not allow Jesus to bow down and wash the dirt from his feet, how would he ever understand that Jesus had to die on a cross in his place to wash the sin from his heart forever? So Jesus demanded of his disciples a right response to this act of service. Foregoing it was not an option. He said to Peter, as he says to every man, woman, and child who ever lived, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Do you understand the absolute truth of that declaration as it applies to you? Whether you're here, whether you're old or young, male or female, religious or not all that religious, do you understand the absolute truth of that declaration as it applies to you? Unless He washes you, you have no part with Him. Unless He makes you clean with a cleansing that you can never accomplish for yourself, you will have nothing to do with Him forever. But if you abandoned all of your doomed efforts to make yourself clean in His sight, and you simply trust in the cleansing that He accomplished for you at the cost of His own precious poured out blood, then you'll be forever clean. Forever clean. In the eyes of our perfectly holy God. That's the only way that happens. Jesus cleanses hearts and He makes them clean forever. Now there's a third exchange here between Peter and Jesus that briefly turns our attention once again to Judas who will become the focus of attention later in the chapter. In that third exchange, Jesus uses this episode of foot washing as a prophecy of the betrayal that Judas was about to carry out. John tells us straight up that when Jesus said, not all of you are clean, He wasn't talking about Peter or Peter's feet. He was talking about Judas. This humble act that drove Peter to distraction drove Judas to defection. This was the last straw for Judas. He simply could not continue to follow a supposed king who would demean himself to do something as unthinkable as washing another man's feet. Judas maintained his cover just long enough for Jesus to finish this offensive act. And then he headed straight for the temple authorities. There's a a very telling contrast here between Peter and Judas. Peter was confused and upset and resistant, just like you and I are at times when we're struggling to understand what God is up to in our lives. But Peter stayed the course with Jesus, the one he had already acknowledged as the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one who alone has words of eternal life. Peter kept staying with Jesus no matter how confused he got. Peter was frustrated with Jesus, but Judas was done with Jesus. And Jesus knew exactly what Judas was going to do about it. The first layer of cleansing in this living parable of foot washing was a preview 
Jesus' humble and loving act of washing the disciples' feet. It was a preview of the incomparable act of humble service He would render the next day on a cross. But there's a second exceedingly important layer of meaning here to the cleansing that Jesus carried out. And it's the more obvious layer. It's an eminently practical lesson. The washing of His disciples' feet was a paradigm for the humble service that Jesus requires of every disciple in every age. And that means all of us who belong to Him. Listen as I read verses 12 to 17 once again. So when He had washed their feet and taken His garments and reclined at the table again, He said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? Now, now, if you had been one of Jesus' disciples up to this point, you should be thinking, I probably don't. Jesus said, You call Me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then the Lord and teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. And then Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. And you know what we're supposed to do when we hear those words? Pay attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. You want a clarifying view of life? Read that verse over and over and over. The slave is not greater than the master. And then he said, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now I want to take a good look at what Jesus is calling all of us here to do. But first, let's consider what he's not calling us to do. Why do we as a local body not practice ceremonial foot washing as part of our corporate worship the way some churches do? Well, there is absolutely nothing in the book of Acts or in the rest of the New Testament epistles to indicate that the disciples or those who came to faith through the disciples' witness practiced foot washing as a memorial observance like the Lord's Supper or Baptism. The church, from the very beginning, understood the assignment here to be a practical assignment, not a ceremonial assignment. You with me? This is important. Now that doesn't mean, please understand, that doesn't mean that it's bad or inappropriate for churches, churches to practice foot washing. I believe God gives us the latitude to exercise a lot of creativity in how we worship, as long as we don't exalt our remembrances to the same level as the ones commanded by Jesus. But it was not Jesus' intention here to create another ceremony for the church to practice. It was His intention to tell us how to live in relationship with one another. Notice our Lord's words in John thirteen seventeen. He said, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Not this thing, not this ritual. If you know these things. What things are we supposed to know and act upon? We'll just look at verses 16 and 17 together. I'll read them again. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. 
the things that Jesus intends for all of us to do are all the things that honor and copy His example of humble service toward us. All the way to a cross. Doesn't mean you and I get to die for the sins of other people. But it means we might get to die for the sake of Christ. And we might get to die to serve another person. And that's how we should see it. We get to do these things. Because we have been handed the amazing privilege of following Christ Jesus our Lord. It's amazing how often in the New Testament when Jesus is presented as an example for us to follow, the assignment is all about humility. Philippians 2, that was in focus at this morning's worship. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 2. You have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in His mouth. While being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Colossians 3 And so, as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Following Jesus' example means living lives of humble, self-denying service that might cost you a whole lot but not for long so to whom are we called to display the same heart of humble service that we find in Christ well whose feet did Jesus instruct his disciples to wash in this passage verse 14 says wash one another's feet who's that Well, the passage started with John saying that Jesus, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the uttermost. Whose feet did Jesus wash? Those who belonged to Him. Now, granted, Judas was still in the mix when Jesus washed the feet, but Jesus had a special prophetic purpose for including Judas, as we've already seen. The point of verses 12 to 17 when Jesus explains his assignment to his disciples is that we are to humbly serve one another within the community of believers. If we had time, I could show you passage after passage after passage after passage that calls us to humble, loving service toward one another. Get an electronic concordance. Go online, Bible.org, and look up the words one another. And read all those verses in the New Testament. And you'll see what I'm talking about. That's talking about the church, beloved. 
Just a little later here in John 13, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now that certainly does not mean that we aren't called to humble service toward lost men and women. Practical, tangible, sacrificial service toward the lost. The parable of the Good Samaritan applies to our treatment of all people. But the divine assignment that Jesus is giving to us here certainly does mean that our foremost call to service is toward each other. And it turns out by God's doing (laughs) that our service toward each other is one of the most powerfully useful things that we do to draw others toward Christ. Did you know that? Did you know that one of the most one of the most powerful evangelistic things that you do in your life is to love your brothers and sisters in Christ? This is huge. It's huge right here in this chapter. Jesus says later on, "By this all men will know that you are my disciples." How? By the love that you have for one another. In the high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus says, not only will they know who you are by the service that you render to each other, but because of your service and because of the otherworldly unity that I will create among you, they will know that my Father sent me. The world will know that God the Father sent God the Son by looking at us. At how we deal with each other. See, if you're concerned to be an effective evangelist, at the very heart of God's assignment for you is to love the brethren, the children of God. That's how God shows the world who we are and who Jesus is. Now, I know I'm oversimplifying this, but I set this on the table as just as something for you to think about. Something that struck me this week as I was... uh, just kind of basking in the, in the humble service of Jesus toward us and toward me is this. The humility that the world wants to see in us is a humility of words. They want us to be less confident about our proclamation of Christ. But the humility that God wants to see in us is a humility of deeds. Can you think of even one instance in the Gospels in which Jesus pulled his punches in proclaiming the truth about God and about sin and righteousness and judgment so that people wouldn't think he was being arrogant or overconfident? I can't think of even one instance. In fact, I go back through the prophets in the Old Testament, I can't think of one instance when any of the prophets of God ever did such a thing. They didn't pull their punches at all. They didn't care if they were accused of being arrogant. Now, how many instances can you think of from the Gospels in which Jesus stunned people by showing kindness and compassion to the despised and rejected among men and women in ways that no earthly king would ever consider? Lots of examples there, right? 
You see the distinction between humility of words and humility of deeds? Here's where our humility of words comes in. We speak what he tells us to speak. Our words need to be his words. They don't need to modify or adjust or misrepresent him in any way. That's our humility when we speak. But beloved, we're called to speak the truth in love without compromise, without soft peddling, without qualifying. We are called to proclaim Jesus without apology as the way, the truth, and the life, and to tell people there is no other. And you know what people will say of, say of you when you preach that truth? They will say, you think way too highly of yourself. To be that confident about anything. I still remember a Church of Unity bumper sticker when I was in college. It said, to question is the answer. That's the new mantra of this world. And it's absolute garbage. I sat on a religion panel with a bunch of people once, and one of them was an agnostic, and he said, confidence is overrated. And then... When they came to me, I said, I'm really, really fond of confidence in the Word of God. Now think about this. As we speak God's truth in the power and authority of His indwelling Holy Spirit, we are to accompany that proclamation with deeds that display the very humility of Christ, especially in our love toward one another. Bold words beautifully adorned by humble and loving and self-sacrificing deeds. I want to close by sharing just a few thoughts from Bob Deffenbaugh's commentary on this gospel. And by the way, this is still my favorite commentary on the gospel of John. I've looked at a bunch. B.A. Carson's is great. Uh, Leon Morris, Andreas Kostenberger, Ron Anytime you need commentaries, talk to Ron Manus. He will fix you up because he's got a bunch of them. This one, when it comes to spiritual benefit, still, still delivers for me. And, and if you can get your hands on it, I highly recommend it. I'm just going to give you a, a few statements that Bob makes when he gets to the application section of this passage. First, make a commitment to the Lord to begin washing the feet of others. And he puts the washing the feet in quotes because it's an example, right? He says, recognize that this is contrary to the spirit of the age. What he means by that is that this culture will call you weak. They will find justification for treating you as inconsequential because you're not seeking the honor and wealth and power that they believe every person needs to go after with all that they've got in order to have a good life. But you will be powerfully used by God in the lives of those who desperately need Jesus Christ. Second thing Bob says is you don't have to look for this kind of ministry opportunity. It will find you. He says, our problem is not a lack of opportunities to wash feet. It is our unwillingness to see and seize those opportunities. I thought about that a lot. And I realized that any time I hear myself saying, Lord, anything but that, I can be really sure that's exactly what God wants me to do. 
Third point Bob makes, we need to focus our attention on those undone things which we have come to expect someone else to do. Isn't that great? Beloved, anytime you see a need and you think, well, I'm sure somebody's going to get on that. Someone's going to jump on that need. You can be really sure that God wants you to be the one that does the jumping. Now that does not mean that you're going to meet every need that God sets before you. But it, it does mean that you're going to see to it that the need gets addressed. If it's a need in the body of Christ, especially, you might have to go after other people and, get, and channel their gifts toward the meeting of that need because your gift might not fit the bill. But the idea that we get to see an unmet need in the body of Christ and just turn away and walk away and expect somebody else to take care of it, that's not how this works. That's not following Jesus' example. We should be tripping all over each other to lovingly and humbly serve one another as we have been lovingly and humbly served beyond all measure to the one to whom all glory is due. Dear Father, make us servants who love to serve others as Jesus Christ has served us. The servant is not greater than his master. If the Lord of heaven and earth lowered himself not merely to wash his disciples' feet, but to die as a criminal, cursed by you to redeem us out of eternal slavery to sin, who are we, Lord, to withhold humble, loving service toward those he died to redeem and toward those who remain in the darkness? Father, make us servants who love to serve others as our great God and Savior has served us. We ask it in His precious and beautiful name.